Old Oak Bible Church gathered uh, once again, but uh, we're not there yet. And we, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get restless. We've started to settle into new routines, but it doesn't necessarily mean we like them. Uh, but we pray that as you are restless, that you are seeking rest in the Lord Jesus. Uh, if you are new to new Old Oak, welcome. Uh, my name is Pastor Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to have you. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to know more about Old Oak, you could check out oldoakbiblechurch.org, and uh, we would love to meet you in person. So when this is all over, come check us out in Middleburg Heights, right by Southwest General Hospital. And we've been not trying to substitute all that we can as we're together in person. We long to be uh, back together, place full and smiles and, you know, just feeling the energy and feeling the spirit of God uh, as we are, as God's people are gathered. But even as we are apart, we're doing what we can to draw near the Lord and seek him in his word, uh, pray and, and sing in, in our homes uh, as imperfect and as that might be. But as we seek the Lord this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 25. So I invite you to find a Bible, turn there. And before we get started, let's pray. Would you pray with me? God of all mercy and truth and power and grace, we praise you this morning. We need you this morning and we rejoice that you are real this morning. God, our, our sin in our hearts gets in the way of seeing you. It gets in the way of following you, of enjoying you, of enjoying our, our fellowship and communion with you. So, Lord, we confess it and we ask you to remove it from us. Uh, we confess our entitlement and restlessness in this time. We confess, God, uh, forgetting you in this time. But this morning, uh, we want to humble ourselves before you, remember you, and seek you afresh all again in your word. So please instruct us, correct us, encourage us, shape us, mature us, and fill us with your spirit so that we walk like Jesus. Send forth your word from this time in more ways than we know to glorify your great name and extend grace to sinners. Send forth your word uh, in our community from churches like Park Heights Baptist and Brook Park. Be with Pastor Larry there today. Send forth your word in, around the world, especially through the continent of Africa, that you give hope to those in darkness, even in a country like Chad. So God, we draw near to you at this time, and we ask that you would help us be doers of the word, not just hearers only that you would show us the beauty of Christ, that we would taste and see that you are good yet again. In his name we pray, amen. I wonder if you had to summarize what it's meant to experience this pandemic in just one word. What is that word that you would choose? Would it be uncertainty? Panic? Fear? Hysteria? I'll throw my own into the ring. About wait. It's W-A-I-T. This is a time that's been waiting. Waiting to hear more regulations. Waiting to see what the extent of the damage is. Waiting to have places open. Waiting to go back to work. Waiting to go back to school. Waiting to make our plans. Waiting in line for 20 minutes outside of Home Depot just to get into the store. That one hits home a little bit this week with me. 
You know, waiting is an experience that links God's people throughout the millennium. Think all the way back to Genesis. Abram. God called Abram, who became Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, a pagan land, to come to the land of Canaan, where God promised him land and seed and blessing. And still, God made Abram wait, almost till he was 100 years old, till for him and his wife to have their own child. Well, Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. We know the story. Uh, he was falsely accused when he got to Egypt in slavery, and he wound up in prison, and then God made Joseph wait there. All of God's people end up in, ended up in Egypt. It was good at first, and then they became enslaved, and they had to wait 400 years to be brought out of Egypt. Finally brought out of Egypt in the wilderness, heading to the, back to the promised land. God's people indulged in sin time and again, and God's people had to wait some 40 years to get into the promised land. Well, they finally make it in. They're in the land of Canaan again. They're in the promised land, and then God's people have to wait to receive all of the promised land. Well, they get all the promised land, and now God's people still have to wait for the right person to rule over the promised land. They finally get a king. Oh, but then they have to wait for the right king. They finally get the right king. Time goes on, indulge in more sin century after century, and God eventually allows them to be pulled out into exile because of their sin. They're away from the land, and now they have to wait to return back to the promised land. They finally get back to the promised land again. Maybe this time. No, maybe this time they're done waiting. No. They get back to the promised land. It's, they discover it's not all that it, they thought it would be, not all that it should be. God's people are still waiting for their true king, waiting for the true savior. God's people, we look at their history, are no strangers to waiting. Now, this sermon this morning is not strictly a sermon on patience, but we do deal with a text that offers us a faithful model of what it means to wait on the Lord. So hopefully if you found it, Psalm 25, uh, we're continuing our series of drawing near to God in the Psalms. This morning, we are drawing near to God while we wait for God. And this is Psalm 25. Again, this is a Psalm of David. The word of the Lord reads, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your paths, O oh Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what hatred, violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, Psalm 25 is an acrostic psalm. It means that each stanza of this psalm begins with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are other psalms like this. It's not quite as comprehensive of an acrostic as something like Psalm 119 is. But organizing a psalm as an acrostic might help with memorizing the psalm, which many people did. It might help it be more artistic or poetic, or it might communicate that this psalm is dealing with a certain subject really from A to Z, comprehensively. But for whatever reason, David sets up this psalm acrostically, and therefore there's not as clear of a stream of thought throughout Psalm 25. It's, it's more cyclical than it is consecutive and chronological. But we can still piece together David's situation to some degree. Like a lot of psalms, this one comes during some kind of trouble and opposition. You see, David's under threat. And from his other requests in Psalm 25, we can piece together that David doesn't really know what to do in his situation. And we can piece together that David has some sort of guilt in this situation also. But there is one word that comes up at the beginning, middle, and end of this psalm. It's the word we mentioned at the very beginning of our time. That's the word wait. Wait. Even when this psalm ends, David is still waiting. And that makes Psalm 25 a unique guide for what we do while we wait. And it shows us who God is while we wait. So here's the main point. In life, we may have to wait for God. In life, we may have to wait for God. But we never have to wait to live in humble, honest dependence on God. We're going to organize our time uh, maybe two broad ways, looking at David's requests and David's resolve. We're going to spend most of our time in the first section, David's requests. We'll file those under three broad categories. So we'll see David's requests and David's resolve. First, with his requests. Since this psalm is more cyclical than it is consecutive or chronological, we're going to jump around just a little bit, not go through it strictly uh, verse by verse consecutively. Uh, But we are going to start with the beginning. And as we look at the beginning of this psalm, we can sum up the first category of requests that David makes to God under the heading of deliverance. So heading one, first category of requests, deliverance. 
So look at the third and fourth lines of verse 2. David writes, Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Now, this is a strange way to ask for deliverance. This might not be how you and me ask for deliverance. So what does this mean? Is David asking God, you know, God, keep me from being embarrassed? It's, it's more than that. Just keep in mind that David lives in a different culture than we do. David lives in more of a shame and honor culture. And shame comes in the form of being exposed for everyone and everybody to see. And the deepest shame was not just that David himself would be exposed, but what David relied on and trusted in and stood for would be exposed. And what was that for David? What did David trust in and, and rely on and stand for? Well, just you look at verse 3, gives us a clue into that. David stood for a way of life that's not dependent on his own schemes, but it rather is dependent on the Lord. So maybe we could summarize David's prayer for deliverance in our own words. David might be praying to God, God, I depend on you for how I live. And that's put me in situations where if you don't deliver me, I won't stand a chance against the treacherous, self-interested schemes of the world. Now, it's worth reflecting on this personally just a little bit because radical, countercultural faithfulness to God means that at times we will be vulnerable to the world's schemes and values. At times, those around us, be they family or friends or colleagues, will show their opposition to how we live, to what we stand for. And no matter how loving we live out our dependence and faithfulness to God, we'll be called names, we'll be misunderstood, we'll be slandered. But Christian, that's how it's always been. Ever since the beginning, God's people, even the early Christians, they were called things like cannibals out of a misunderstanding for the Lord's Supper. They were called frauds and they were treated as worse. So I wonder, just thinking of David's situation, he's living in dependence on God and that put him in a situation, in a place where he was vulnerable. I wonder, are the patterns of our lives and the desires of our hearts so different from the world that they only make sense because of our dependence on God? Like that's the only way they could possibly make sense. Because, you know, there are things that God calls us to do and ways God calls us to live that are, in the eyes of the world, altogether like, really dumb. The world sees it as dumb to remain celibate until you're married. It makes no sense to the world why we would always be committed to telling the truth even at a place like work when we could, that would prevent us from advancing our own careers or reputations. So God, I just, I wonder if, if we have ever felt or if you have ever felt the danger and sacrifice of maintaining your integrity of being faithful to God. Have you ever felt the danger and sacrifice of that? I, I think a lot of us might fall, uh, run the risk of being really good at noticing all of the new trends and patterns of our culture that stand in opposition to God. Uh, we're, we should notice that, but we've become really good at noticing 
those patterns of opposition at large, but I don't know how many of us feel that opposition personally. We feel that we could see that opposition out there. I don't know how many of us feel that opposition personally. Listen, I don't want to paint with too broad of a stroke, and I need to lump myself into this as well, but we too often stay silent and don't live out our dependence on God in the clear, joyful, compelling, and thoughtful ways that we ought to. We don't do that because we want to maintain our ease and comfort because we want to avoid opposition and rejection in whatever ways we can. So the reason we might not feel the opposition personally like David does here at the beginning of Psalm 25, the reason we might not feel that is because we don't live out our faith in God in as clear of ways that we think we do. Listen, we should be honest about that. And then we go to the Lord again in deliverance and ask him for deliverance. So here is David's first broad request to God as he waits for God. He asked God, deliver me. I'm depending on you. Don't let me down. But as we're going to go through David's requests to God and we're going to dissect them, uh, including this one, we can't divorce David's requests to God from the posture with which he makes those requests. We can't divorce what David prays to God from how David prays to God. So David prays to God for deliverance, but he does so from a posture of trust in God. Think about if that posture wasn't in place. It's not hard to think about this. You just think of, think of how you prepare for every single Cleveland Browns football season. Each year, you know, I ask the Cleveland Browns, you know, please, guys, do not disappoint me. Do not let me down. But none of us really make that request of that team with any certainty or confidence. Because each and every year, the Browns, I'm sorry, they do let us down. But the request David makes here in verse 2 is sandwiched in between statements of trust in God. So you can just see that, how David starts and how David keeps going. David prays to God as one who entrusts himself to God, who lifts up his entire being to God. And as David prays to God with the right posture of trust, he also prays to God according to the truth about who God is. So David prays to God because he knows God is a God who hears prayer. David prays to God for deliverance because God is a God of deliverance. And David trusts, we see, that God will work out everything in the end, that he will not let him down. But notice that doesn't keep David from praying. That actually leads David to pray all the more fervently and all the more confidently. So the Psalms remind us including right here in Psalm 25, David's requests for God to deliver him. It reminds us that it's possible to express both frank honesty about our situation. You know, other Psalms ask, how long, O Lord? It's possible to do that as well and at the same time express faith and dependence on God alone. Many of us have observed that the Psalms teach us not to, not to complain about God, but to complain to God. 
to be honest, but then seek God in faith. So as David waits for God, for a situation to resolve, he's honest about a situation. He asks God to deliver him, not to let him down, to come through for him. And the second broad category of David's requests is for guidance. So we have forgiveness, and then, or, um, excuse me, we have deliverance, and then we have guidance. You got a sneak preview there. David, pray, David prays to God for guidance. And you know, part of what makes waiting stressful is that we don't know what to do. You know, we have to make decisions. The, the timing of making those decisions isn't always delayed, but we don't know all the information we would like to know to, in order to make those decisions. So, you know, shout out to the people who are trying to continue with their wedding plans during COVID-19 and have to make decisions. That's me. <laughs> so David prays for guidance. And at times, God gives really clear direction on what he wants us to do. He gives clear direction on decision-making. Even He even did so for David. So for example, at certain points in David's life, he would ask God, you know, God, should I go into this battle against this certain enemy or not? And God would just directly tell him yes or no. But here in Psalm 25, the guidance David requests from God is deeper. It's more mature. As one author puts it, David's prayer for guidance doesn't concern itself so much with how God guides, but with whom God guides. Again, it's more than just what we pray for. It is how we pray. Look at verses 4 and 5. David writes, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. You see, these verses here present us with something deeper and more mature than looking to God as some kind of magic eight ball. You know, you've seen one of those before. You know, you shake it up and then you get an answer. You know, David wants help from God more than with just the tough decisions of his life. David wants to follow God in all of God's ways. He wants to be immersed in God's truth. You know, believe it or not, and I am guilty of this too in my past, but believe it or not, wisdom does not come from taking a Bible, opening to a random page, you know, covering your eyes, and then pointing down your finger on a certain spot on the page, and then lifting open, and there is your guidance from God. Maybe, sure, God can work that way occasionally, but that's not God's intention and design to give us wisdom and guidance. And the way he does that is when we are immersed in his word. We know his word. We sit in his word. We see the breadth and depth of his word so that we have a foundation of God's ways, so that we have wisdom for all of life, so that we are so immersed in his word that we can see how his word you know, relates to situations that the Bible doesn't directly speak to. This is why we so often advocate to weave immersion in the word into our daily patterns of living. Not just skimming over the Bible, but sitting in it and praying through it and reflecting on it and studying it. It's why we preach the sermons that we do. One of the ways we can immerse ourselves in the word is by giving ourselves over to engage with robust and thoughtful and 
doctrinally sound and Christ-exalting preaching of the Bible, actually seeing what's there in the text. You're not using the text as some kind of springboard into a Christian TED Talk. God guides those who are immersed in his truth, who do this persistently and patiently, even as they wait for him. That's how he gives the foundation of wisdom for all of life. And as David continues his prayer for guidance, we find also that he knows God guides those who are aware of their sinfulness and limitations. God guides those who are aware of their sinfulness and limitations. Look at verses 8 and 9. David writes, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So here, David lays no claim that God somehow owes him instruction. David is well aware that he does not deserve God's favor. He deserves quite the opposite, God's judgment. And yet still, God, the God of the universe, the Holy One, instructs sinners. What a condescension of grace. Could we put this in some kind of human analogy? Could we say that we would be amazed if Albert Einstein taught Introduction to Physics at Cuyahoga Community College. We would tell Dr. Einstein, you know, Big Al, this is really nice, but do you really think this is the best use of your time? But it makes sense here, doesn't it? That those who don't recognize their sinfulness won't see their need for God's grace. Those who feel just fine with their own wisdom won't draw near to God for instruction. You see, those who enter God's school of guidance know that they don't deserve it. And they know if they don't receive it, they have no hope. Can we use another human analogy? Let's just say a year from now, you had to climb Mount Everest. For some reason, you, you, had, you were required to do so. And if you had any kind of wits about you, you would seek maybe some help or instruction from a guide or teacher. And I wonder what kind of teacher you would seek help from. Would you seek help from a teacher who just told you, hey man, like, just do whatever makes you feel good on that mountain, you know? Go whatever way you feel is best. You know, just, just live out your truth when you're going up that mountain, man. You're going to get there. Uh, you may tell yourself, well, that's, that's real nice and all, but that's really dumb. <laughs> I need a guide who knows what he's doing, who's going to give me direction. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to climb a mountain. I can't do this. You humble yourselves, see your limitations, and see your sin. Those are the people God guides. So God guides those who are immersed in the word, who are humbly aware of their sins and limitations, and, as we keep going, God guides those who have a real relationship with him, who have a real relationship with him, a relationship that's marked by love and trust and praise and obedience. We see this relationship on display in verse 10. David writes, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So really? All the paths? All of what God does, even when he makes us wait, 
he does out of love and faithfulness for those who belong to him? Yeah, we believe that. We believe that even when people mean an evil for us, God means it for good in some sovereign way. We believe that so much that we actually keep and obey what God tells us to do. We see this real relationship in verses 12 to 14. Look at those, 12 to 14. David asks, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in the well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. So keep in mind what David is praying for. David's praying for guidance. And the context in which he prays that prayer is the context of a real and personal relationship with God. So here in verses 12 to 14, this is a relationship where there is reverence and respect and praise for God. It's a relationship where one listens to God, where one enjoys God, where one knows him as father and friend. Now this tells us that Guidance from God begins only when we are reconciled to God and put in a right relationship with him. That's when guidance begins. And more on that soon. Just, just for now. If you give lip service to God and ask him for some level of guidance in your life, but you don't have a real and personal relationship with him, if that is the case for you, what are you really communicating to God? I mean, aren't you saying that God only matters when you need him and not every, everywhere else and every time else? Aren't you saying to God, if this is the case, that you don't care so much about knowing God as much as you care about using God? That even the demons know that using God doesn't work. For example, in a place like Acts chapter 19, you know, Paul and his crew of apostles are going out, casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they, other people see them do that, and they see, hear them use Jesus' name, and so they try to make a name for themselves, and they use Jesus' name. And demons respond famously in Acts 19, and what do the demons say? They, they say, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. But who are you? Isn't it scary? humbling, that even demons can spot frauds who only want to use God and not know him. In this time of waiting, time of waiting that comes with COVID-19, maybe it's waiting to see what will happen with your job. Maybe it's waiting to see your friends again at school. Maybe it's waiting to see what will happen with your health or the health of, with somebody you love. Maybe it's see, waiting to see what will happen with our country. In this time of waiting, undoubtedly, there will be many people who seek guidance from the Lord. I don't want to speak against that. That's a good instinct. But waiting can and should wake us up to the fact that our relationship with God is not what it should be in the first place. James 1 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God is kind, God is gracious, and God is wise. But as we ask God for wisdom and for guidance, we should also ask ourselves, am I someone who God guides all the time? 
Do I desire to live out his will, not just in this particular decision, but in my entire life? And therefore, am I immersed in the main way he gives guidance, his word? Do I come to God with a deep awareness of my sin and my limitations? Do I ask for guidance from God out of the context of a personal and real relationship with him that's marked by love and obedience? Yeah, so it's okay to seek the Lord for guidance. And as we wait for God's gracious provision of guidance, ask God that by his grace, he would make you guide a bull. David, he waited on God, trusting that God would not fail him, pleading for God to deliver him, and asking God to guide him in all of life. The last category of requests comes under the heading of forgiveness. So we've had deliverance, guidance, and now forgiveness. This comes out clearly at several points, so just you follow along. Verses 6 to 7, David writes, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Comes out in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Comes out in verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Listen, for as much as our situations bother us, stress us out because we need deliverance, we need guidance, we don't know what to do, for as much as all that bothers us and stresses us out, David's experience here gives us a little bit of a clue as to what should bother us and stress us out and weigh on us the most. That is our sin. Our sin should do that. See, David's concerned not just with the state of his soul, or the state of his situation. David's concerned with the state of his soul. Does that concern mark you, Christian? Do you pray more about your circumstances than you pray about your own sin? Do you examine your situation without first examining your own heart and life? So David, yes, he needs guidance and he needs deliverance. But you know what? He also needs forgiveness. He needs to be restored to God because his fellowship with God is broken. He feels estranged from God. This is what aches him. You could hear it in verse 16, for example. You can hear David crying, God, turn to me and be gracious. Just instructs us we got to do more than merely casually acknowledge our sins. Hey, God, you know, I slipped up. I'm sorry. God is something I'm working on. Join David and say, pardon my guilt for it is great. Again, David not only prays the right things, he prays in the right ways. So David makes this request to God for forgiveness with a certain posture. He makes this request to God for forgiveness with the posture of having a desire to repent a desire to repent. So the request for forgiveness goes together with a request for guidance. Look back again at verse 8. David doesn't just say, God, you know, wipe the slate clean. David says, God, wipe the slate clean and change my heart and my life. Lead me to something better. Lead me again to your ways. 
David prays with a posture of a right understanding of what grace really is. He knows forgiveness isn't earned. He appeals to God's grace and mercy in order to be forgiven. So David doesn't say, you know, God, I will do this, 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 and this. You know, and then you have to forgive me. No. David says, God, according to your steadfast love and faithfulness, according to your mercy, forgive me. But at the same time, he, David knows that forgiveness isn't earned, but he knows that forgiveness isn't cheap either. David has a desire to change. So David doesn't just say, God, wipe the slate clean, and then I'm going to go and live however I want to live. David doesn't obey in order to be forgiven. He's forgiven, and then he wants to obey. That's how God has always worked. And we can see also that David asks God for forgiveness with the posture of desiring God's glory. So we praise in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. One commentator says this about this verse. He says, Great sins demand great displays of grace. And great displays of grace are wondrously to the glory of God. So you might remember Ephesians chapter 1. It details our salvation that God won for us through Christ. And the refrain that comes throughout over and over again in Ephesians 1 is to the praise of God's glorious grace. So in each request to, that David makes to God as he waits for God, he prays with the right posture. doesn't just pray for the right things. He prays in the right ways. But also we see it especially comes out in the forgiveness piece of it, that when David prays to God, he prays with a right view of God. Worth noticing here. So as David asks God for forgiveness, you see in verse 7 that David appeals to God's steadfast love and goodness and then in verse 8, he appeals to God's uprightness. So in other words, as David asks God for forgiveness, he appeals to God's love and mercy and grace on one hand, but also he appeals to God's justice and righteousness and holiness on the other. But we look at that and we think that there's kind of a dilemma here, isn't there, though? And when it comes to pardoning sin and forgiveness... How can God be both merciful and upright? So if God just forgets about sin, you know, he plays the role of every kid cleaning up their room and sort of just shoves sin into the closet, we might think that that's a merciful act of God, but it wouldn't be a just and upright act of God. Well, let's just say God rightly and justly punishes David for his sin. Well, that is a just and upright act of God, but it is not necessarily a merciful act of God. So how do we uphold both in forgiveness? Forgiveness, uh, we know just from experience, forgiveness requires payment. We have sinned against God. We have done damage, and the damage needs to be paid for. But God can uphold the damage being paid for in justice and mercy because God himself pays for the damage that we've caused, that we've done against him and he pays for it himself. How does God do that? 
ultimately. It's through his son, Jesus Christ, who paid and met the demands of justice by living the life of perfect obedience that we did not live. And by dying the death on the cross, paying for all of our sins, the death that we deserve. So God, through Jesus, can uphold both justice, meeting its demands, and mercy, extending this gift to sinners. So there's no wonder why Romans says that through Jesus, God is both just and justifier. That through Jesus is God's ultimate display of what David talks about and appeals to in verses 7 and 8. Of God's goodness and mercy upheld alongside God's uprightness and justice. So friend, I wonder in this time of waiting, if whether or not God has brought you to this time to wake you up for your need for forgiveness from him. And there is just one way the gracious and final provision. Take hold of Jesus by faith. His perfect life in your place, his substitutionary death in your place. Be reconciled to God and walk in repentance and follow Jesus as Lord. That is offered to you this morning, even as you wait. Well, we can get in trouble when we wait, can't we? We can get in trouble when we wait. I don't know if you remember, you probably do, the, the golden calf incident, Exodus 32. Israel's, uh, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they make this golden calf out of all the golden jewelry that they have, and they bow down and worship it. And I wonder, though, if you remember that the golden calf incident happened in the context of waiting. Exodus 32 begins, by saying, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain. Everybody's saying, hey, maybe Moses is gone. We've been waiting forever. But instead of waiting for God, they made demands on God. Instead of humbling themselves under God's way and rule, they asserted their own ways and rule. Instead of rehearsing the truth about who God really is, they made God in their own image. Waiting is a testing ground. It reveals the priorities of our prayer lives. It reveals our dependence on God or lack thereof. It reveals our posture before God. It reveals our view of God. So you think of this time right now. This is a time of waiting. We are waiting to be back together again as a church. It's just a time to examine ourselves. How are we waiting on the Lord? Just as we're waiting to get back together again, what's the content of our prayers? What is the content of our prayers? What are we praying for? Deliverance, guidance, forgiveness. These would be good places to start. As we're waiting to get back together again, what, are, what is the posture of our hearts? Think of all that we've talked about and seen in Psalm 25. Humility, confession, trust, love, reverence, obedience, aiming at God's, God's glory. So we're waiting to get back together again. What is our view of God? Are we holding on to the truth about him? That God is a God of deliverance, of our salvation, who is true and loving and merciful and forgiving, upright, good, and faithful. God's people are no strangers to waiting. It's true for David. It's true for us. The question is, how will we wait? 
We spent a good bit of time looking at David's requests uh, and prayers as he waited for the Lord. And as we close out the psalm, we're going to look uh, at David's resolve a little more briefly. David's resolve. Look at verses 16 to 22 again. David writes here, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. We get to the end of this psalm. Is there any indication that David's situation has changed? I don't see any. In fact, in verse 21, David says he is still waiting for God. And although David's situation is unresolved, David himself is resolved to continue to wait on the Lord. And that word wait, it it carries the idea of waiting eagerly. Not of a passive action, but of an active stance toward life. So David's situation is unresolved, but he is resolved to continue to wait on the Lord. And that looks like continuing to follow the Lord in obedience. So you look at verse 21. By God's grace and forgiveness, David resolves to walk in integrity and uprightness. He resolves to do this, even though his situation is pretty cruddy still. He resolves to do this, even though the people around him still hate him and are still scheming to destroy him. He resolves to obey the Lord and follow him still. Resolved to do that. David's situation is unresolved, but he is resolved to wait on the Lord. And that looks like also a prayerful dependence on God. A prayerful dependence on God. So we look at verse 15. David writes that his eyes are ever toward the Lord. Verse 16. David seeks God's presence and his care. So we put these two together and waiting on the Lord, resolving to do that, involves resolved obedience and resolved prayerful dependence on God. And we could see this really clearly when we see this lived out in David's life. And especially when we see this lived out in David's life in comparison, in contrast to the king that went before him, King Saul. So David, at one point of his life, this is 1 Samuel 26, at the end of the uh, book, book of 1 Samuel. David's been uh, hunted by Saul. He has an opportunity to kill Saul when he found Saul sleeping in a cave. But instead of wrongfully taking matters into his own hands, David waited on God continued in obedience and dependence on the Lord. Saul, on the other hand, earlier in the book in 1 Samuel, around 1 Samuel 13, the Philistines, a regular foe of the Israelites, the Philistines approached Israel to wage battle yet again. And Saul was told that this was going to happen. But he was told when this was going to happen, he was to wait at the city of Gilgal for further instructions from the prophet Samuel. So he's in Gilgal. He's waiting for Samuel. He's been waiting for seven days and still not a peep from Samuel. 
So Saul's getting kind of antsy. He's getting kind of nervous. You know, okay, I get it. Like all these, you know, religious instructions are important, but I'm in a bind here. There are more pressing and practical matters than all this religious stuff. I need to just go forward anyway with the battle preparations. Hmm. You see, the, the temptation to seek security and satisfaction by whatever means besides waiting on the Lord. That temptation is real. That is the temptation that is the hotbed for nearly all of our sin. And listen, sin is never worth it. Sin is never worth it. Do not trade short-term pleasure and security for long-term sorrow and ruin. Do not have a small view of God like Saul did. Listen, waiting on the Lord might seem really impractical. It might seem like it doesn't make any sense. It might seem like you don't feel like doing it. But friend, believe that God really can keep his promises and wait. Whereas sin is never worth it. Waiting on the Lord is always worth it even through suffering, even when things don't make sense, even when we don't know what to do, resolve to wait on the Lord. Like so many of his other psalms, David ends Psalm 25 by broadening out his prayer to extend to all people. So verse 22 says, Redeem Israel, O Lord, out of all his troubles. So you flash forward hundreds of years later, seeing how God answered this prayer. And we land down in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. We find a man named Simeon. Luke describes Simeon as a man who is in Jerusalem. He's a righteous and devout man. And Simeon, Luke says, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation meaning waiting for the comfort of Israel, waiting for God to rescue and redeem his people fully and finally. And then one day in the temple, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in and Simeon sees it. And the Holy Spirit prompts Simeon in his heart basically to tell him, Simeon, this is it. And Simeon responds and cries out, my eyes have seen God's salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What Simeon and all of God's people had been waiting for since Psalm 25, verse 22, and even before then, what they had been waiting for has arrived. Redemption is here. God sent his son in the fullness of time, the perfect time, to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. So, like the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we still wait for the risen Christ to return. And our lives are a lot of waiting, aren't they? But we do not wait for forgiveness, do we? No, it's already here. Redemption is here. That Jesus has already come to give his life as a ransom for many assures us that as we wait for him to return to establish his kingdom fully and make all things new, 
It assures us that God is not slow to keep his promises. As Christ's redeemed people, we can resolve to wait eagerly and take heart and believe because of Jesus all the more that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray to the Lord. Father in heaven, indeed, we, we wait. There's so much that seems undone and unresolved. And we wait. There's a pandemic. People dying. People murdering. There's injustice everywhere. Tyranny still. We wait. There is uncertainty about jobs and family. And we wait. And we ask God that you would help us to wait well. We ask for deliverance. We are honest about our need for it. We ask for guidance. We don't know what to do. We have no claim that we deserve to know when you are gracious. And we ask for forgiveness, God. We know, we know our sin, our guilt is great. God, we want to wait with the right posture. We want to wait knowing the truth about you. And finally, God, we ask that you help us wait and speak to our hearts and assure us of what we do not wait for any longer. We do not wait to be reconciled to you at peace with you forever. We do not wait for the redemption of our souls. Lord Jesus, you have brought it already. So come quickly, Lord, as we wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.